This is Ashley Stone, and you're listening to The Comeback Podcast. Josh, I am so excited to have you on the podcast. I've watched your TikTok videos for a while, and TikTok is kind of a place that can be really um, anti-Mormon. When we started the podcast, I've never been a big TikTok user, but I was like, you know what? I'm going to make some videos to kind of counteract all of this anti stuff out there. And I mean, I used to post more, but I don't really as much anymore because it's just such a like dark place. And if you have the thick skin to to really go for it, there's several people that I found that they just go for it. And I love it. And you are one of those people. And I just, I applaud you so much for putting up with all the haters. Well, I appreciate it. It's not always easy. I got on TikTok, gosh, it's maybe been like three years ago now um, for totally different reasons, right? And I got on and I started seeing all of this anti-content and anti-content. I was like, who's making the pro-church content? Yeah. And uh, so I was like, somebody ought to do it. Might as well be me. So I started making pro-church content. And I'm so grateful that in the last three years, we have seen so many, because there weren't that many three years ago. Um, there were a handful of really, really good content creators. Now there are tons of really, really good pro-church content creators. And it's been fun to see the community grow. It's been fun to see really the miracles that have happened because of the way we're able to talk about the church on TikTok. And uh, it's it's been good. Yeah, I remember the first time I got on TikTok and one of the first videos that I made, the amount of negativity that I got, I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can handle this. And then somebody's like, you need to filter so people can't comment the word cult. Yes. And so that helped. But um, and then after a while, it's like just the same, same old crap over and over and over and over. And you've just kind of get like, you're just like, oh, yeah, this is this is kind of lame. So. Yeah, it. you know, it's funny. I uh, I have not practiced law in 10 years. I was able to walk away from the practice of law, but a little bit like lawyering, you have to you have to be able to absorb a lot of negativity <laughs> because mm -hmm. you're getting it from a client or from opposing counsel or, you know, it's just it's always sort of coming in. I actually wasn't that good at it when I was a lawyer. I think that's one of the things that made me walk away from the practice of law because back then, 10 years ago, I just was like, I, I can't do this. I don't know. I think I'd be a little bit better at it now, but it definitely has helped me. Like that experience, lawyering, I think has helped me with dealing with some of the negativity online. Yeah, thickening <laughs> your skin a little bit. Yeah. Well, you stuck out to me because I was, I mean, I've seen your videos for a while, but just recently, I was scrolling and I saw a video of yours where you're talking about you had a faith crisis. It was a six year long faith crisis. And I just was like, you know what? It's time. We got to have him on the podcast. And so I'm so glad that you accepted the invitation to be on the podcast with kind of short notice too. So thank you so much for doing that. Yeah. So let's go ahead and jump in. Would love to hear your story. I mean, would love to start at kind of the beginning in your background, you know? Yeah how it all got started. I grew up in the church. My parents divorced when I was uh, when I was four years old and we moved in with my grandma. And I always sort of like to say, you know, it's funny. We we kind of grew up in a neighborhood of haves being have nots. You know, we were sort of the I, I remember 
when we first moved into our neighborhood, the only shoes that my brother and I had were like Converse weapons, you know, like those basketball shoes. Might even have been before that. They might have just been like red canvas Chuck Taylors. And uh, I remember going to church and, you know, the primary president called my mom and was like, you know, it would be very helpful if, uh, you know, your boys would wear some actual church <laughs> church shoes to church. <laughs> That was the pair of shoes that I had. Like we couldn't afford other uh, other shoes. It was kind of an interesting thing being a child of divorced parents in the 1980s in the church. It wasn't always the, you know, I think we do so much better now of making sure that people feel included, making sure that people feel comfortable, that they know that they're welcome. You know, the 80s didn't always feel that way. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so my family always sort of had this sort of interesting relationship with the church. I get the sense that my mom was not super active when she was a teenager. My dad probably went. There was like this brief window after my parents got married where they both really got into the church. And when I was like a year and a half old, we went to the temple as a family and they got sealed. But, you know, other than that, that sort of period of time, I'm not sure there's been a time when both of my parents have been active at the same time. Now, growing up, my mom made it a huge priority for us to go to church, but she was also very chill about the whole thing. I mean, I tell people when I was like 15, you know, we had nine o'clock church and I was your typical teenager and I didn't like to wake up in the morning and she'd wake up, you know, Sunday morning and be like, hey, kids, it's time for church. And I'd be like, mom, I'm too tired. I don't want to go to church. And she would say, that's all right, honey. I love you anyway, you know, or not even anyway, just I love you. And she was very accepting with the choices that we as kids would make which was a great environment for me to grow up. I had lunch with with somebody who's sort of prominently against the church on TikTok back in about June. And I was, I was kind of telling him my story because uh, he was like, you know, I mean, you probably grew up with, you know, dad being a priesthood holder, giving you blessings all the time. And I told him my story and I told him my background. He was like, finally, after hearing a little bit about my background, he was like, oh, you grew up nuanced. And I was like, yeah, that's a good way to describe it. I guess I really did because you know, in my household, we did not have these bright line rules that were like, you must go to church, you must do this, you must do that. There was no expectation for me that I serve a mission. I think the last time somebody in my family served a mission was like my great grandpa or something like that. Right at the end of my senior year of high school, I was offered to go play basketball uh, at a school down in Texas. And my seminary teacher from the year before called me into his office after like hearing this news. And he sat me down and, you know, we just were kind of talking. He was asking about Texas and stuff. And he asked me, he said, Josh, do you know that the church is true? And I was like, yeah, I mean, I guess I think it is. He was like, how do you know? And I was like, well, I guess I feel good when I'm there. You know, I have friends there and stuff. And then he asked me, he said, have you ever read the Book of Mormon? And I was like, no, I never have. I tried a couple of times, but I always got stuck in Second Nephi, you know? Yeah. But he said, OK, here's the challenge that I'm going to give to you. I challenge you to, before you go away to school down in Texas, read the Book of Mormon for yourself and find out if it's true. And so I spent that summer after my senior year of high school reading the Book of Mormon for the first time in my life. And three days before I went away to school down in Texas, I prayed to know if it was true. And I got an answer. And that was such a massive blessing in my life because I, I really had my own testimony for the first time. And so when I got down to Texas and I was suddenly, you know, at this small liberal art, liberal arts school with 3000 students and there were five members of the church and I was able to, you know, make decisions based on my testimony and, you know, not sort of go. I, I, I had so many fun friends down there. You know, they, they knew maybe they were glad, but they knew that 
I was the designated driver when we'd go to parties, you know, <laughs> that I was never going to do any of that kind of stuff that my first year of college, I was like, you know what? I really like the feelings I have when, when I'm in church, I should share that with the world. So I'm going to go on a mission. And I put in my mission papers and uh, got called on a mission to Brazil and had a great experience, loved my mission so much. My mission in a lot of ways was really an anchor for me because I had experiences on my mission that made it so that I know that God lives. I know that he is intimately involved in the lives of his children, that he cares very much about us. I, I never doubted that <laughs> based on experiences I had on my mission. After my mission, one of my mission companions, I sort of owe this mission companion, Brandon of mine, so many things because he was the one about halfway through my mission. He was like, bro, you should transfer to BYU when you get home from your mission. Just come to BYU with me. It'll be so much fun. I was like, all right, sounds good. So uh, transferred to BYU. And then after I'd been at BYU about six months, he was like, hey, you should apply and you should come and be an EFY counselor with me. And I was like, dude, EFY? I never went to EFY as a teenager. Kids would come home from EFY and we're like, we had the greatest experience. And I was like, that is so cheesy. <laughs> and uh, and he's like, you should come to EFY and be an EFY counselor. I was like, okay. So I applied to be uh, an EFY counselor. And long story short, because of being an EFY counselor, had an amazing experience. Loved that summer. I met my wife. And so this mission companion of mine, Brandon, is responsible for me meeting my wife. Well, she and I, uh, we finish at BYU. And then we went to graduate school in Minnesota. I uh, started working on a master's degree in Portuguese literature. Wow. And that's probably really sort of when my faith crisis sort of began. Because what happened was I suddenly was given these tools, these intellectual tools that I'd never really had before about, you know, deconstructing colonialism and being on the lookout for American imperialism and, and postmodernism and what that means. And, you know, the Gramscian view of the, you know, I mean, just all, all these different sort of intellectual tools. And as we applied these things to power structures, mostly in the Western world and in Latin America, but also in other places in Africa um, and, and some of the places that were colonialized there, I started to take some of these tools and I sort of started to apply them to the church. It didn't start me in faith crisis at that point, but it did make me start to sort of question narratives. And so I would hear things in church history and I'd be like, oh, I'm going to investigate. Like, oh, there's there's a little bit more there. I wonder what, that, that, what that's all about. But, you know, I'm busy. I eventually abandoned my master's degree because I figured out I didn't want to be a college professor. And I uh, moved over to the law school. And, and so I went to law school. You know, I was busy enough during law school that I didn't, you know, I wasn't taking time to explore these things and do extra research and things like that. But, you know, fast forward a couple of four years, I finished law school. Uh, my wife and I moved back to Utah and I am a, you know, junior associate at, at a law firm and I'm just, I'm, I'm miserable. I'm, I'm an extrovert. I like talking to people and sitting in an office reading and writing all day just felt like the walls of the universe were closing in. And I just, you know, and, and, and when you're a lawyer in your office reading and writing all day, if your phone does ring, chances are the person on the other end is angry with you about something or angry about something in life or, you know, and uh, it just, it was a tough environment. I, I don't think that I was emotionally mature enough at that point in my life to be a lawyer. I think I probably had, you know, issues that I was working out from my childhood that 
my childhood was wonderful in so many ways. I love both of my parents so much. I, I, I just, I, I had a great childhood in many ways, but there were still things that, you know, I was sort of coming to terms with and trying to figure out. So I'm a lawyer, I'm in my office. And that's when I start doing research. That's when I'm like, oh, you know, I remember I had that question about, you know, this thing on Joseph Smith. And, you know, I just really sort of started doing all the research. And I love there's a great uh, there's a great TikTok account. The, the guy who runs the account is named Cole. It's called We TikTok of Christ. And he's got a really great TikTok that he's got pinned to his profile that talks about the three layers of church history. Layer A is really what we get when we go to church. I don't think the church has any obligation to do anything but present its best foot forward for the for the world. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. the church has got a miraculous history with a lot of wonderful things in it. Why not tell those stories? Um, and that's what the church has traditionally always done. Then this TikTok talks about how there is layer B to church history. And that's when you start finding out the things that, you know, you weren't taught in Sunday school. And it can be a little bit shocking and a little bit like, wait, what in the world is going on? Well, if that's not true, then then that must not be true. Then that must, wow. And that's when people go into faith crisis over issues of, of church history. Then that TikTok talks about layer C. And layer C is where you go in and you do the research for yourself. You get both sides of the issue you know, you see that often these anti-narratives that, uh, that are being peddled to you online, that there's some distortion, there's some omissions, there's some half-truths, there there's all these problematic things with the way that narrative, that level B narrative is being given to you. And that is the level where when you start doing your own research and you get to the end of some of those research roads, that's when I think you can do what uh, Elder Neil L. Anderson said, and you get to choose. At that point, you can say, oh, all right. I can weigh the evidence this way and say, yeah, I have real problems with Joseph Smith and he must have been a fraud. Or you can say, you know what? There's a lot of evidence that also weighs in the other direction. Which one of these two things am, am I going to choose? And I think also when you take into account anti-accounts and, you know, people that are pushing their anti-narrative on you, they do not take into account spiritual experiences like they say that spiritual experiences are just not real one of the things that i've noticed from my own personal experience is that you know if you turn to god for answers to hard questions they actually become resolved in a way that doesn't satisfy the tiktok haters you know what i mean and i think that when you're looking at that layer c and you're looking at the arguments for and against also if you turn to god and ask him what he thinks like it will open up doors and inspiration in your mind that you know you otherwise wouldn't get i think that's absolutely true and i think that's one of the hard things about going through a faith crisis and the ironic thing is that oftentimes when we go through faith crisis we start searching the internet we want other people's opinions we want to hear other people's answers to the questions but my experience was that no one else's answers would satisfy me because I was in this place of skepticism. I was in this place of wanting to see evidence. I was in this place of needing more information. So if somebody told me something, I was like, I'm not sure that's true either. You know, and it, it was ultimately me finding my own answers that was the was the intellectual end of my faith crisis. Now, the spiritual side of the end of my faith crisis to me was was much more powerful than that. And, and fortunately for me, I mean, like I mentioned, during my mission, I had an experience that made me made me know that God lives. 
there is a higher power. Now, during my faith crisis, there was a time when I was like, but is it really the God of Christianity? Is it really Jesus? I mean, I know there's a higher power. Is it really that who it is? And after some reflection and some thinking about it and some praying, I came to the conclusion that yes, it is God, our eternal father. It is Jesus. Um, so that was a real anchor for me during my faith crisis, because I see so many people who go through it that, you know, they go, well, if the church isn't true, then maybe God's not there. And if God's not there, then wow, God isn't there. And they just fall into this nihilism, you know, mm -hmm. which is a can also be a tough place to be. I mean, yeah. I mean it's a really tough place. I don't know that I would have come back from nihilism. Right. So I'm so grateful for that experience that, uh, you know, that I had as a missionary mm -hmm. that. Uh, kept me anchored to Jesus. Yes. Let's hear more about, I mean, this is a six year period during yeah. that time. Were you going to church? Were you, how, did, if you did, how are you feeling? What was your wife thinking? Were you honest with her? Where were you at in your mind? Because like, I imagine that if you're questioning everything you've been taught for your whole life, you're kind of like, holy crap. Like I feel so duped. Yeah, it, the, these are all great questions. And I think one of the things, I mean, I, I think my, my wife would agree with me that, you know, we are two very strong personalities. Mm -hmm. And because we are two strong personalities, you know, the first 10 ish years of our marriage was really us figuring out how to live with each other um, as really strong personalities. There's still parts of our marriage that are that are intense, uh, because we're, we're both strong personalities. But especially back then at the beginning when, you know, we were still young and didn't know as much about the world, my dissatisfaction at work and not being happy with that obviously bled into home life things and made it so that, you know, I, I was probably a pretty miserable person to be around. And so in 2010, my wife and I separated for, for a three month period. There were a couple of things that sort of precipitated that, but I felt like I was sort of like holding on. And even though I had started reading these things about church history and things, to me, the church was sort of like, this is the thing I'm holding on to. You know, I uh, I went and I, I had a conversation with kind of a spiritual mentor uh, of mine at one point and asked him for advice, of, for marital advice. And he told me, you know, love is a long conversation. Think about it as a long conversation. If you're sitting in a room talking to somebody, and I think we've even seen that on this podcast, there are moments where there's a lot of talking. And there are moments when there's going to be a pause and there's just going to be a silence and there's just going to be a little bit of a, a break. And he said, if you approach love as a long conversation and just remember that there are going to be good times and bad times, he went to Doctrine and Covenants 132 and he said, I mean, look at the promises that we're given. I mean, our eternal marriages, our celestial marriages say that they are going to go to all heights and all depths. And, you know, we, we often, we read those verses and we think about all of the great things, the kingdoms, the glories, the powers, the principalities, but that all depths, there are some pretty low points that you're going to have to go through in a celestial marriage when you're at those points of going down to the depths. So we, we separated in 2010 and the church was like this big anchor to me. And uh, my wife did a couple of things where I was like, I don't know how seriously you're taking this whole church thing. And if you don't think it's that important, then maybe it's not that important. And that's when I was really like, you know what? I'm taking a break from church. So I was probably about a year inactive from about mid-2010. Uh, my wife and I separated. We, we were apart for about three months. I actually had some health things going on and uh, had to have a, a surgery to, um, I mean, you, I guess you can see the scar on my neck. I had a parathyroidectomy, you guys. 
Mm. Parathyroid is the gland that regulates the amount of calcium that you have in your body. And if that gets out of whack and you have too much calcium, you get really lethargic, you get really tired, all these things. So I was going through all this stuff and we didn't know why. And then we figured out why. But, you know, me, faith crisis, hating my job, parathyroidectomy, coming home from work and just laying on the couch like I was not a good husband. I was not a good father. And my wife was like, I'm done. I'm done with this. Like, this is ridiculous. So I had the surgery and we just sort of like set it up without, you know, there were no lawyers involved or anything, but we set up parenting time so that I would have the kids every other weekend and on Wednesday nights. And my wife was like, wow, like you're showing up for things. Like you seem to have more energy. Like this is amazing. And so, you know, after a while I convinced her to take me back. She did. But once I came back, that just getting back into my marriage did not resolve the issues that I had with the church. And and then there was that sort of thing like, oh, man, I've been gone. Everybody's going to be talking about me. You know, we were separated. That's weird. So I was like, I'm not going back to church. So I didn't go back to church probably for six months after we got back together um, for quite a while. And then I sort of started coming back to church. But then I was, you know, the guy in the back of the classroom that would like raise his hand and be like, tell us about Joseph Smith's wives, you know, and in like sort of asking those during that period, my bishop during this time just handled it the best way possible. Cause I would go into his office and I would ask him questions. I, I would go in and I would make declarations like Bishop, I believe, but I am a David Whitmer Mormon. What I mean by that is I think that Joseph Smith was a prophet, but I think that he fell and the church has been on the wrong path ever since. You know, my bishop would just say, well, you know, I love you. And then he would just give me little challenges to keep myself spiritually grounded to the extent that I could be. You know, I'm going to give you a challenge. Just go home and spend 15 minutes in the scriptures. You know, he obviously knew about the issues that I was having in my marriage. And so he would give me a challenge like, why don't you go home and say a prayer with your wife tonight and be like, Bishop, I don't think that's a great idea. And uh, and he'd be like, well, why don't you try anyway? And then I'd go do it and I would have a good experience. And And even though I had all these questions and things, the bishop was just expressing love. He never got confrontational. He never, you know, told me I was wrong in my thinking. And I remember one of the last times that I went to go talk to him about my faith crisis thing, I was like, I'm never going back to the temple bishop. I know the origin of the endowment ceremony. I've done the research about it, and I am never going back. That is just a, you know, he was like, okay, well, if that's how you feel, then then that's how you feel. You know, we love you. There were a couple of things that that were good for me in this in this timeline. Um, the first thing was that the thing keeping me in my marriage prior to my faith crisis was that it was the church. And so the nice thing about getting back into my marriage with the church out of the picture was now I was like, okay, I am here for my wife, just for her. Let's forget about the church. And is she the right person for me just on that level between her and me? And it was a beautiful thing. You know, I would tell people that, you know, falling in love with my wife uh, the first time was was great. Falling in love with her the second time was even better. Um, you know, that. it just without the religious uh, scaffolding around my marriage, it, uh, it and you asked me, by the way, you know, was I honest with her and telling her about my faith crisis? I don't I don't think I ever really told her about it because we had enough stuff going on without mm -hmm. me being, by the way. Yeah, uh, I'm not so sure about the church because of my time lawyering and seeing how often people during depositions would get facts wrong that were from like six months ago. 
there was also a part of me that was skeptical about some of the things being said about church history because I was like, how can they really know that? Like, people don't know what happened six months ago. How do they know what happened 180 years ago, you know? Mm -hmm. So that was another thing that kept me from just being like, oh, those antis are 100 percent right. Because I was like, the evidence is not as strong as they're presenting it to be. And so I'm in this period. I'm still lawyering. I'm not a very happy person to be around. I decide that I am done practicing law. And at the beginning of 2013, I leave. My wife has a business. It's kind of going well enough at that point that maybe I can get by as a stay at home dad. And so we try that out. And within nine months of me being the stay-at-home dad, we are separated again because I am not good at it. And especially in kind of the frame of mind that I that I am. And so, you know, my faith crisis very much coincides with all of these personal things that are going on in my life as well um, contributed to it. Because it was easy for me to be like, well, if my home life's not going well again, then it must be the church's fault. You know, there had to be a culprit. It, it couldn't be my fault, you know. So we got separated again in 2013. During this time of separation, I have lunch with some friends that I had made that were a couple from Detroit. We were having lunch and they were going to celebrate their 35-year wedding anniversary the next day. And I asked the wife, I say, you know, you guys know I'm having some marital issues. I'm, I'm separated again what advice can you give me? How have you guys been able to have a 35-year marriage? And she looked at me and she said, the best marriage advice I ever got was this. If you got an issue, issue. And I'm like, huh? She's like, if you got an issue, issue. And I'm like, if you got an issue, it's me. Oh, maybe I'm the problem. And then I kind of started thinking about it. And I was like, I really might be the problem. <laughs> like, it, like, I really might be the problem that helped me to change my mindset in such a way that it allowed me to approach life in a way that said, maybe I got some changes I need to make. Maybe I need to be a little bit better at this, a little bit better at that. Maybe I need to do this and that, you know, I mean, the Lord puts people in our lives in order to lead us along little by little. And that was the perfect person for me to talk to at that point and to help me. You know, once again, when my wife and I separated, I was like, okay, I'm going to stop going to church again. I think when we got back together, the separation was a little shorter this time. And I think I started going back to church pretty much immediately. I got to this point where, so, so with my faith crisis, I was doubting whether the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is God's church on earth. I looked at a couple of other Christian denominations, never visited any of them because I, I really believe in the idea of the great apostasy. But at the end of the day, the thing that really, I can't remember if this was before the first separation or the second, it had to be after the first one, because I still had an income. So I had to have something. But after I had been uh, out for about a year, I felt like I was no longer getting the blessings of paying tithing. So I was like, well, I don't like this church. I don't like that church. I feel like those blessings in Malachi chapter three really are true. So I guess I'll just kind of do the lazy thing and I'll just go back to church and I'll pay my tithing in my ward. And I did. And tithing was sort of the thing that took me back the first time. I was still sort of that gadfly in the back row of Sunday school for quite a long time. But, you know, fast forward after my second time being separated from my wife, I started really studying the things that Jesus said and taught. And it kept coming up over and over again, you know. Peter and John are having this argument, which of us is going to be greatest in heaven? And Jesus gets the little child and sits him on his lap and says, whichever one of you is most like this little child is the one who's going to be the greatest in heaven. You have to have the faith of a child. And I was like, 
huh, maybe I am overthinking all of this. Maybe I need to stop reading No Man Knows My History and Rough Stone Rolling and, you know, spending time on all these message boards and talking to all these people and asking all these questions and reading all this stuff. Maybe I just need to start having the faith of a child again. And it was probably sometime sort of mid-2014-ish that I'm like, okay, I am going to have the faith of a child and I'm just going to put the questions aside. I'm just going to start exercising the faith of a child so that if, you know, the church leader says, say your prayers, I'm going to say my prayers. They say, spend some time reading the scriptures, I'm going to read the scriptures. And Ashley, the spirit came flooding back into my life. It was like this feeling of like, oh my gosh, my old friend, like, there you are. Where have you been? Well, I can see where you've been. I walked away from you and now you're back. And this is amazing. And it was the the next conference, April 2015, Elder Holland, now President Holland, gave that talk where justice, love, and mercy meet about those two brothers who were rock climbing in Snow Canyon. And I really looked at my time in my faith crisis as that brother who was about to fall without Jesus in his life. I was like, I'm falling through oblivion without Jesus in my life. And there is every sign that the best place for me to find Jesus is right here in the church. And that talk was the end of my faith crisis. I have not doubted the church since hearing that talk. Oh my gosh, that is so amazing. And one thing that is not lost on me here is that you paid your tithing. And that was something that you held on to despite the faith crisis. I think it's interesting because... I see all the time on social media how people are like, the church just wants your money. They just want you to pay your 10%. They just want your money. And that is such an issue with people. And you, that was not an issue for you. That was something that you held on to despite your questions, which I find so interesting. I'm going to be honest. I had, I had real problems with City Creek Mall when, you know, the whole thing with the ribbon cutting ceremony and President Monson saying, let's go shopping and stuff. I was just kind of like, what is the church doing? Is this what we ought to be doing? But, you know, you go downtown now and downtown Salt Lake is a beautiful place to be. And there are not many big cities in America right now that have beautiful downtowns where you can go. So you know, is the best priority to make the the land around Temple Square uh, beautiful and a comfortable place for people to be? I don't know. I know I had problems with it back then, but my decision to pay tithing wasn't, I'm paying tithing because I think the church is true. My decision to pay tithing was based on things like, um, you know, John Huntsman Sr. made a statement uh, maybe in about 2005, and he said that early in their marriage, he and his wife decided that every time there was a talk about doubling your fast offerings, that a church leader said, double your fast offerings, that they just would do it. And the last time that they heard a talk say that, he turned to his wife and he said, should we really double our fast offerings? If we double our fast offerings this time, we're going to be paying $512,000 a month in fast offerings. But the thing that he says about that is that as they gave more their abundance would increase, whether they were giving to charities, whether they were giving to the church, wherever. And so that to me was like, okay, there is really this thing where if you are generous, then that will put you sort of into circles of of generosity. And so for me, it was important. I still believed the Bible, 
And so I still believed in the promises in Malachi 3 about the windows of heaven being open. And I was like, okay, I need to pay my tithing. I am not sure that the church of Jesus Christ is the right place to be paying my tithing. But as I look around at these other churches and things like that, it's probably the best option for now. You know, I'm not going to go give my tithing to the Baptist church or to the Catholics. Like I just, I, I've never seen my tithing dollars appear to be misspent when I've paid them in the church. So I'll just pay the church there. It was more a testimony of tithing than a testimony of, I still think the church is true enough that I'm going to pay tithing. It was more like, I need to pay my tithing and it seems like the least worst option. <laughs> Honestly, I love that. I feel... Like I have my own testimony of tithing and it's not because I pay my tithing and then I'm like, oh, you know, we just got a bunch of money after I paid my tithing. It's not because of that. There's a quote by, I think it's like um, Robert Kiyosaki, the rich dad, poor dad guy. It's not like mm -hmm. somebody in the church, but he says, God doesn't need to receive, but people need to give. And I, I just love that because it's not about you know, they, they're not checking your bank statements to make sure that you're paying 10%. They're not doing that. But having the faith to do something hard that feels hard, it just, it stretches you as a person and it, it really refines your faith. So while we're on the topic of this, of finances, I'm sure you probably got asked questions. I know because people go to your comment section and I love the responses that you give. They're they're very well thought out. And when people criticize the church because of the whole investment thing that happened, I actually had a one of my siblings reach out to me and say, "What are your thoughts on this?" Like he kind of respects my my thought and he's like, "What do you see in this?" And I was just like, my, in my opinion, you know, Lauren and I we've chatted about this a ton. And my opinion is that well, first, you tell me what you think about it, and then I'll share my opinion. Can, can I give you my framework for how I approach things like this that Please. I developed as a result of my faith crisis? Please. At the end of the day, I thought, okay, what is the church really claiming? When the church says that it is true, what does that actually mean? And I just kind of made a list of, of the church's fundamental truth claims. And to me, the fundamental truth claims are, number one, God lives. Number two, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to atone for the sins of the world. Number three, Jesus established a church during New Testament times with priesthood authority. Number four, that church, in the fulfillment of prophecy, ceased to exist on the earth. Number five, the Lord called Joseph Smith to be a prophet of God to restore his true church. Number six, as kind of the great symbol of this restoration that the heavens were open again, God revealed the Book of Mormon to Joseph Smith. Number seven, God gave priesthood authority to Joseph Smith in order to administer his church here on earth. Number eight, Joseph successfully passed that priesthood authority onto successor prophets and apostles. And then number nine, that line of authority remains unbroken to the present day. And so that was that's kind of my framework. And so I look at things like, you know, the SEC filings. And I say, okay, which one of those nine things does that refute? And does that, you know, does that make it so that the church could not possibly be true? And the only one of those things that it would even touch on is whether we have a prophet on earth today, whether that priesthood line of authority was established and survives intact to the present day. And so 
I'm an attorney. I've, I, I wasn't a regulatory attorney. I'm not a tax accountant and things like that. But the nice thing about the kind of law that I did was that you saw a lot of snapshots of different things. And so I know how complicated regulatory compliance is. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, you know, when, when we don't know how these things work, I think we even think about this in like with doctor's offices, we think we can just go into the doctor's office and say, here's what's wrong. And they will say, here's the solution. Well, it turns out that doctors often are using this framework of medicine that they have learned in order to sort of experiment on you to try to figure out what the problem is. And with regulatory compliance, entities are required to file these different forms. And they will go to tax and regulatory and legal counsel, and they will say, okay, what's the best strategy for for dealing with this? And the thing that we don't realize when we don't deal with the federal government and things like that is there are a ton of open questions in terms of regulatory compliance. I took an entire class in law school about open questions in the law. There's this place where state law overlaps with federal law. And as those two law structures interact with each other, there are these spaces where there are these open questions. And people have built entire careers on giving their clients advice on how those open questions ought to be handled. So when the church, this you know, multi-billion dollar organization goes to their accountants and to their lawyers and they say, what's the best strategy on this? To me, it is entirely reasonable for those lawyers to have looked at it and said, you know, Form 13F compliance. Um, Everybody hates Form 13F because what it's supposed to do is it's supposed to let smaller investors know what bigger investors are going to do. And if you research Form 13F outside of the church's involvement with it, you see a lot of articles that are like, Form 13F is the dumbest thing in the world. Because what happens is these large investors... They make all of their moves at the beginning of a quarter, and then they don't have to report on the moves they made during that prior quarter until the very end of the next quarter. And so by the time the small investors get the information that's supposed to help them to know what the big investors are doing, it's already four to five months old. And investment advice that is four to five, you know, knowing what somebody did with their investments four to five months ago is totally irrelevant to what people are doing right now. And so Form 13F does not work the way that it's intended to work. And so nobody likes this form. So to me, if the church goes to their legal counsel and says, hey, how should we handle this? And they say, you know, I mean, one one way that you could handle it is that you could file it as separate entities. Why, why don't we try that as a regulatory strategy? The federal government has, there's so many bandwidth problems in the federal government whether it's the court system, whether it's the regulatory system, the immigration system, there's just too many things happening for the federal government to, uh, you know, keep an eye on everything. And that's why they rely on whistleblowers. Uh, You know, in this case, the church had a whistleblower. He came to the federal government and said, I don't think the church is doing this the right way. Federal government took a look at it. And uh, the church was like, oh, hmm, maybe we're not doing this way. And differently than most entities that are audited by the SEC, the church immediately said, okay, we're going to change what we're doing and whatever you guys want to do in terms of a fine, we're going to pay it. That's what the church did. You know, people are like, crimes were committed. The church frauded, defrauded everybody. The church, you know, this is practically criminal. And it's like, you read that order. And yes, the language in the SEC's order is not the least bit flattering to the church. And why should it be? They weren't following a federal regulation. 
you know, there are no allegations of any crimes of what we call in the legal world moral turpitude. There are no crimes of fraud. Making a misrepresentation on a form is not the same thing as committing fraud. And the SEC didn't say that the church committed fraud. And so I think this is one of those situations where critics of the church who are just sitting there waiting for something to go wrong mm-hmm. pounced on it and made a much bigger deal out of it than than really it, it even is. Yes, that's my opinion of it is, you know, clearly you understand a lot more about the the back end side of things than I do. But that's exactly what I said was, I believe that the church would never intentionally do something wrong, or corrupt or not in compliance, like they would not do that. And I think I don't know. I think you're exactly right. Anybody that is against the church is going to take any little thing and they're going to turn it into something huge. So that was an well, yeah. incredible explanation. Well, and, and just to play devil's advocate a little bit, let's say that the church really was like, yes, we know this is wrong and we are going to do this wrong or we're going to file it wrong. Like we we know this is not in compliance. I mean, it, it seems like maybe that's really what happened. And, you know, the critics will say, well, They took this to the first presidency and the first presidency said that was okay. So here's the question. With this error in filing form 13F, does this mean that Russell M. Nelson cannot be God's prophet on earth? Does this automatically disqualify him from being the prophet? And what if your answer to that is even yes? I mean, let's take it one step further. Like, yes, obviously this means the entire first presidency is out. Well, there are multiple layers of the keys of the kingdom within the church. So let's say the entire first presidency does apostatize and they leave. Well, Quorum of the Twelve Apostles still also holds concurrent keys. Let's say the entire Quorum of the Twelve Apostles is out. The Quorums of the Seventy still hold those keys together and could reestablish the church. And so for me, even in the worst case scenario, if President Nelson is some evil scheming guy that, you know, was trying to defraud the federal government by misfiling this form, I don't think it defeats the the truth claims of the church. And and I've had many spiritual confirmations since all this came out that the church is true. So it, it doesn't bother me that much. I love that so much. So kind of in closing here, I want to know, I mean, you gave us kind of your framework for dissecting hard questions. But one thing I want to know is what advice would you give to somebody who is starting to go down the rabbit hole? Let's say they're even exposed on TikTok to some of the anti stuff. What advice would you give to somebody that is their shelf just broke? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, it's funny because at various times during the faith crisis process, people will give you advice that you're sort of not ready to hear. Um, Like you just said, their shelf just broke. It was somebody in the church back in the 70s, I think, that created that term, just, just put stuff on your shelf. You know, I have come to realize as I have strengthened my relationship with Jesus Christ and as I have understood more fully what his atonement means, that there is no shelf that he does not have the ability to hold up. He is all powerful, almighty. I mean, it's Helaman chapter five, verse 12. He is the rock upon which we can build. He is a foundation upon which we build. Our shelves cannot break. But that does not help somebody who's actually in faith crisis. Because if somebody had told me that when I was in my faith crisis, I would have been like, that's so cheesy. You know, that's just so dumb. (laughs) So the, the real advice that I would give is it's probably the same advice that was given to me about my marriage early on. A faith journey is a long conversation. One of the things that gave me great comfort when I came back to the church was going back and reading the story of Abraham. 
Abraham, the father of the three Western religions, sometimes would go decades between spiritual manifestations. And if Abraham is going decades between spiritual manifestations, you might go decades too, and that's okay. Remember that it is a long process. I think the sooner you can get back to having the faith of a child, I think the shorter your faith crisis is going to be because those spiritual manifestations really are real. When I have somebody who is so often, they'll just, they'll just dismiss spiritual manifestations as elevation emotion. When you have received real revelation where into your mind is placed information that you would have no absolute, no way of knowing outside of yourself or within yourself, and that is placed in your mind by revelation, that is something real that you can hold on to that is way beyond elevation emotion. And uh, for me, one of the most important talks of the last 15 years has been that 2018 talk that President Nelson gave when he was first called as president of the church, revelation for the church, revelation for our lives, because it gives the best step-by-step -step process that I've seen on how to learn to receive revelation so that you can go beyond, you know, the revelations that you receive early on in your heart. Um, as it says in the DNC, those might feel pretty similar to elevation emotion. You might have a difficult time distinguishing between, you know, the burning of the bosom and elevation emotion that you might get in some other kind of situation. But when you move beyond that and you start getting the revelation in your mind, then you know that it's not just elevation emotion. And so the advice I would give to people is it's okay if it takes a long time. I would say don't make any drastic changes in your life. Um, there are those who, you know, we read in in Second Peter in the last couple of weeks in Come Follow Me, who will seek to make merchandise of you as you go through this process. Uh, you know, they'll ask you to join their coaching programs and to donate to their podcasts and things. And I would say, yes. you know, my advice would be don't don't do that for a while. Have this process be your own process. Some of the best advice that I got, and this will be the last piece of advice that I give, is advice that I heard from a member of the 70 when I asked him this same question. Uh, you know, I said, what advice would you give to somebody who's going through faith crisis? And he said, remember what Nephi says at the end of, of Second Nephi as he's talking. I'm going to pull it up right here so that I don't misquote it. Um, as he's talking about where he is spiritually, he says in, where are we? Second Nephi 33 verse... Six, he says, I glory in plainness, I glory in truth, I glory in my Jesus, for he hath redeemed my soul from hell. So the advice that this member of the 70, Elder Jeremy R. Yagi, gave was, if you are going through faith crisis, make Jesus your Jesus. Hold on to him. Because, you know, at the end of the day, the church is just a vehicle that helps you get closer to God. And so if you make your process about your relationship with Jesus and make him my Jesus the way that Nephi did, then he will help you along the way uh, through this process. So I think to summarize, yes, it's okay if it takes a long time. Don't make any drastic life changes because it may be a process that takes a while, months or years, but then also make Jesus your Jesus. Those are the three pieces of advice that I would give. That is so beautiful. If somebody is not on TikTok or they don't want to join TikTok, where can they find your content? Anywhere else? 
<laughs> nowhere. You better put start getting them on Instagram because yeah, the la the last time I posted on Instagram was like 2015. You're um, gonna have to relight that because TikTok I... is just you know it's a lot of people are they don't want to get on TikTok, but they I mean your stuff is great. You need to put it on Instagram. Okay, well I I will take that under advisement I uh, that I that, that I think about that. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Yes, Ashley, challenge challenging you to do that so that all right, you know our listeners who aren't on TikTok can find yourself. But if they are on TikTok, how do they find you on TikTok? On TikTok, uh, my username is at Latter Day Christian. The reason why it's at Latter Day Christian is because when we moved away from calling ourselves the Mormon Church, there's still this question: Well, what do we call ourselves? And so my argument is that we ought to call ourselves Latter Day Christians because. One I of the biggest it. problems President Nelson had with the name Mormon was that it omitted the name of the Savior when we talked yeah. about the church. Well, if we call ourselves Latter-day Saints, we're still omitting the name of the Savior. So how do we get his name in there? Let's call ourselves Latter-day Christians. So that's I my argument that. for that. Yes, that is good. <laughs> well, Josh, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast. Thank you so much. This has been just absolutely incredible. You have so much insight my testimony is strengthened after spending this hour with you. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing your testimony. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad that it worked out for me to be able to come on this week. And thank you for your podcast. Because one of the things we see on TikTok is that there are a lot of people coming back to church. Yes, There are a lot of people. I mean, we had a guy in my elders quorum stand up in church on Sunday. And he said, you guys, brethren, you know me, I've lived in the neighborhood for 40 years, but I just want you guys to know that this is my first time in priesthood quorum meeting in 15 years. Wow. And there is a real spiritual awakening that is going on right now around the world. And I think your podcast captures that so beautifully because you are talking to people all the time who have these amazing stories of coming back to church. So thank you for the work that you and Lauren are doing. It really is amazing. And it makes a huge difference in people's lives. I appreciate that so much. Thank you, Josh. Hey guys, just wanted to let you know, we are going to be taking a break, but we will be back January 7th. Hope you have a very Merry Christmas. A lot of people have asked us how they can support the podcast, and we have created a Comeback Podcast merch line on our website, www.comebackpodcast.org. All of the money made from the merch goes right back into the podcast. So if you are interested in supporting the podcast um, and you want to purchase some merch, we would love it. Check it out. Hey guys, first off, I want to give you a heartfelt thank you to all of you that support the podcast. We wouldn't be able to get this message out without all of your help, so thank you so much. I've had a few questions come in from people that aren't on social media, so I just wanted to let you guys know that we do have a website. It's www.comebackpodcast.org. You can find all of our episodes here. Um, there's a list of our book club selections, and you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Thanks again. We love you guys so much.